Let's pray together. And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we've mentioned a few times, but because we're slow learners sometimes, it is back to school Sunday. And if you didn't catch earlier, I told you that after the service, there will be cookies in the lobby to celebrate. But here's what I know. Some of you can't be fooled that easily. You know that when we say back to school, that also means end of summer. Parents are cheering. Students are crying. Teachers and staff are doing a little bit of both. The move from the heightened joy of summer and the freedoms of summer to the routine and hectic parts of the school year can feel like this dramatic plunge from the heights of joy. In 2004, Debbie Downer debuted on the TV show Saturday Night Live. Debbie Downer was a character, fictional character, that was written and portrayed by actress Rachel uh, Dratch. And Debbie lives up to her name. Debbie is a downer. She has negative comments, and she can rob the room of any joy with her exclamations and comments to the room. And there's one episode where Debbie Downer and some of her friends are in Florida on vacation. And they're at a, that Walt Disney World, and they're having a meal together, and her friend, played by actor Jimmy Fallon, orders steak and eggs, one of his favorites. And then Debbie, in her famous monotone voice, responds, Ever since they found mad cow disease in the U.S., I don't take any chances. It can live in your body for years before it ravages your brain. Now, if you know the show, you know right after that would be that sound, wah, wah, as she killed the joy of even a delicious meal. Maybe you know a Debbie Downer or two. I'm sure none of you, though, are Debbie Downers. But even she could go from the heights of joy and plummet us to the depths of despair. Well, last week I preached on the end of Romans chapter 8 in which there's this soaring culmination where Paul says these words with absolute conviction that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then you flip the page to chapter 9, the very next verse, and we read these words from Paul. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It's difficult to imagine a more dramatic plunge from the heights of joy found at the end of chapter 8 to the depths of agony found at the beginning of chapter 9. Which is why some scholars think that maybe chapters 9 through 11 were misplaced or should have just been left out altogether. But I don't agree with that, because I can speak from personal experience about being in the heights of joy and life's expectations and then remembering someone who's not there to share it with you and then plummeting to heart's sorrow. It's possible. And this is Paul's experience. 
Now, he's most likely speaking these words to his friend, Tertius, who physically wrote the letter, as we're told in Romans 16. So you can almost imagine Paul pacing around a room, getting all caught up in this declaration of God's extraordinary love for, for us in Christ. And then Tertius interrupts and says, uh, Paul, wait, Paul, what about the Jews? And then Paul, who had been so focused on these Gentiles, the non-Jews who have come to know Jesus, Paul remembers his faith family who are stumbling over Jesus as the promised Messiah, and his heart's broken. Now, perhaps some of you can relate to Paul's confession this morning. You've come this morning brokenhearted, life with sorrows. Life is full of heartbreaks of all kinds, small and big. And there's no shortage of brokenness in our world. And when we, people ask us, how are you? We typically respond with, I'm good or I'm fine. But what if we responded with a new memory verse, one that I don't often see on t-shirts from Romans 9 that says, I have great sorrow and angu- unceasing anguish in my heart. I've never seen that cross-stitched on a pillow And probably if I went into someone's living room and I saw that on their couch, I would probably make a quick exit before the tea was ever served. Out of great love, Paul desperately wanted his flesh and blood relatives to know and experience the same freedom in Christ he has experienced. Paul remembers those early days of striving before he encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus and Christ ambushed his life. He changed it forever. He set him free through faith. And in response to Christ's love and grace, Paul then devoted his entire life to going all over to proclaim the goodness of God's love on full display in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that love and that mercy and that grace is what fueled Paul through all the trials of his life as he stayed faithful to God. And in this display of love and mercy for these people, it doesn't just sadden him. The scripture says that it is unrelenting agony for Paul. It doesn't stop in his life. And he wants them to receive the gift of grace through Christ so badly that he says, and he pronounces his willingness to be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Much like when we'd say, I'd give my right arm for someone I love. We don't really expect that we're going to have to do that. And I imagine Paul knows, I'm not going to have to give up my life for my brothers and sisters. But his passionate plea tells us the truth of his emotions and his feelings. The depth of that for his fellow Israelites. Some of you may share his broken heart for those that you love who have yet to experience the grace and love and mercy of Jesus. But could our hearts break even in compassion for those we don't know or for those who are our enemies who have yet to know God's mercies? Each summer for many years, my family's gone to Branson, and one of the things we do there is we see the latest Sight and Sound show in Branson. Sight and Sound is a musical experience that brings Bible stories through life, through song and drama. And we've seen a bunch over the years. We've seen Moses and Jesus and Noah and Samson, and this year it was Esther. And one year, the show was about Jonah. 
And if you don't know the short story, the brilliant short story of Jonah in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, Jonah's a prophet who's called to deliver a warning of judgment and an offer of mercy to a rebellious nation called Nineveh. And Nineveh is the worst, the worst, most murderous, most pagan city and empire in all of that ancient world. They built their empire by sending out their armies to conquer other places, and they did so in unspeakable, violent, horrific acts against those people. And they did those to cities of the Israelites and brought people into captivity as a result. So knowing all that background, we can understand why Jonah is not thrilled to go to Nineveh to proclaim God's mercy. So instead, Jonah goes on the run. He runs away. And after a series of wild adventures involving a seaport called Joppa, a huge boat, and a terrible storm, Jonah finds himself in the belly of a giant fish. But that isn't the end of Jonah's story. Because in the belly is where God teaches Jonah about grace and mercy. Well, the giant fish spews Jonah up on dry land and Jonah goes to Nineveh to declare God's mercy and call them to repentance. But he preached much like a teen who has been finally doing the chore that he's been told to do but he doesn't really want to do. There's no heart in Jonah's message when he goes to Nineveh. He is physically obeying, but his heart is not in it. Jonah's got no love in the game, and he still hopes and he believes that Nineveh would never repent, and they will face judgment. But, much to Jonah's surprise and displeasure, Nineveh repents. They repent and they grieve. And in the scripture it says not just every person but even the animals, which might be my favorite part of scripture when it talks about the animals and sackcloth and ashes. Can you picture it? At the end of the short story, Jonah is alive because of God's mercy. And at the end of the story, the thing that Jonah is most upset about is God's mercy. Jonah tells God, this is why I didn't come to Nineveh. Because I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. Jonah says, I knew you would forgive them, and I didn't want you to forgive them. Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites is understandable, and it would have touched the Israelites' heart when they heard this story read to them, told to them. You see, from the very beginning, God's purpose is to bring his blessing and salvation to all the nations through Israel, which puts Israel in a really awkward position when one of those nations is its enemy, Nineveh. They're struggling with the fact that God could possibly love their enemy as much as God loves them and wants their enemy to receive the same mercy that they've experienced. The story of Jonah is really about God and God's people way more than it is about Nineveh. It's about the tendency in the hearts and minds of God's people to see themselves as this unique group who have received God's mercy and then form an arrogant hostility towards the non-chosen ones. Jonah clearly thinks the Ninevites are the worst sinners of all. But the story of Jonah... The one who has the hardest heart is Jonah. 
And throughout the story, God is trying to get him to see, yeah, you are part of the covenant people, and that's cool, Jonah. It's really cool, but you are not superior. You are just as broken and lost and misguided as they are. Don't you see? And as one who has received my generous mercy, why and how can you be angry about my love and concern for the people of Nineveh? And even the animals, too. Poet Thomas Carlyle wrote a powerful book of poetry inspired by the book of Jonah. It's titled, You, Jonah. And here is one of the poems called Tantrum. The generosity of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he slashed with angry prayer at the graciousness of the Almighty. I told you so, he screamed. I knew what you would do, you dirty forgiver. You bless your enemies and show kindness to those who despitefully use you. I imagine some of us have felt this way about God at times. Too generous, too liberal in mercy, God's embrace too wide, a dirty forgiver. The most common description of God throughout scripture is that God is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. We sing with heartfelt gratitude that God has extended all of those things to us. Yet it still seems to surprise us sometimes when God extends it to others. We often read Romans 9 and believe this text is all about who is excluded. But it's really about God and who is included. You see, God has been at work from the very beginning to bless all nations. In the beginning, God chose a people and he built a nation to help God restore the world. A kingdom of priests who would show the world who and what God is like. But God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, have often forgotten the scandalous nature of the God that we love and serve. And we begin to serve ourselves. Throughout this story, this big story with God, God corrects, sometimes gently and sometimes with great discipline. And God prunes when necessary and invites us to new levels of fruitfulness. And along the way, God chose to graft into that family tree the Gentiles, or the wild olive branches as Paul refers to them later on in Romans. You see, the Jews were surprised that the Gentiles had been scandalously included in God's story. That was not what they thought was the plan. And Paul cautions the Gentiles, because they are included, don't get arrogant either. The Israelites are still covenant people. The root of the tree, they are Paul's family. And Paul says in verses 4 and 5 today, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Christ, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. Over the following three chapters here in Romans, Romans 9 through 11, Paul talks a lot about the Jews and what's ahead for them. And Paul returns to the height of joys once again. But how did he get there? 
It's because as Paul went on and on about who God is and who he was and who he'll always be, Paul remembers that it has always been about God and God's mercies. God doesn't go back on God's promises, and God has made promises to God's people. God didn't plant a whole new tree and abandon the old one. God extended the family tree by grafting in the wild olive branches into the existing tree so that they will learn to grow together as one tree that gives him glory and honor. And whether they like it or not, the tree will forever have characteristics of both groups as they grow together as one. This is God's plan. Now, is the joining of two different plants together as one hard and messy? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. That is why so much of Paul's writings aims for unity. Where the past has seen the people of God steadily become entrenched against their neighbors, the early Christian movement would take a name and make a name for itself by including these communities together in fellowship. In his soon-to-be-released book, Centering Jesus, author Derek Freeland writes, God's kingdom depends on the church being a socially diverse and multi-ethnic family where people whom the world tries to divide are united around the throne of the Lamb. Now, friends, if unity is God's plan, then division must be one of evil's greatest objectives. And for Paul in Romans... The answer to division can be summarized in one word, death. His answer is not for Jews to fight for their rights or boast about their heritage or for the Gentiles to brag about their freedom from the law, but for both to follow Jesus in his humiliation and death. Paul relentlessly commands us to compromise and to engage in self-denial, self-death for the sake of of the communal peace. This old text where, where Paul is talking to us is really a tale of three hearts. The first heart is Paul's heart, a heart that's broken for those who haven't grasped the grace of Jesus Christ, a heart that's beating for those outside the faith whom God profoundly loves. This text is also about the heart of God. It belongs to a creator and a redeemer who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in grace. God's heart is the heart of a dirty forgiver. And the third is our hearts. Now, I want to speak to the Christ followers in the room uh, for a moment. And if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, first of all, we are so glad that you're here in person or online, you are welcome. And you can listen in, but this is for the church. Friends, we can sometimes be Debbie Downers. We can kill the joy of God doing a new work of mercy in a group of people or in an individual's life because we've forgotten either that the story is all about God and God's mercies, or we're mad about God's generous mercy to certain others. And yet, like Jonah and Paul, we are only at the table because of God's mercies. Perhaps, friends, we need to beg God to break our hearts for others. Not just those we love, but for our enemies who are loved by God too. 
Perhaps God invites us into relationships with people different from us or even our enemies so God might grow us, teaching us what it means to receive grace and extend mercy, not in the belly of a fish, but in the gut of a diverse church or a broken world. And then God spits us out into the world, covered in God's mercy, so we can speak of God's mercies for those who need and deserve to hear it. And for those who have not yet decided to follow Jesus, I want you to know this morning that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness for you. There is nothing for you to do other than to receive the promise that all has been done already for you. There are no hoops, even though we try to make them. There is no behavior that you have to get right before you say yes to Jesus. Obedience to God brings blessing, but it does not earn love. That is freely given, and it's freely given to you. I want to end this morning with the last poem in Thomas Carlyle's book about Jonah. It's titled Coming Around. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful God, you know us. You know our hearts. You know how much we want to believe and to love, but how hard it is for us sometimes. Forgive us when we want to hoard your mercy and love. Forgive us when we fail to trust you and what you are doing. Forgive us, God, when we force our ways on you and others. And help us, God, to come around to your way of loving. Compassionate God, we we thank you for your mercies, that they're new each morning for all of us. We pray that you'll give us burdened hearts like Paul's. And may our remembrance of what you've done for us fuel us to tell others about what God desires to do for them too. Unite us in your divine love, Lord. As a single body in Christ, may our hearts beat as one for your glory and the good of the world. And may we come around to your way of loving. We offer this prayer in deep gratitude for your steadfast presence, your unending grace, and your everlasting promises. And may your will be done in all things. And may your love reign in our hearts forevermore. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.